Welcome to Democracy Nerd. I am Jeff Smith. Thanks for being here. Last month, the initial hearing in the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection attempt were held. Four U.S. Capitol Police gave testimony of their experiences that day. One of them, Daniel Hodges, used the definition of the term terrorist to describe the actions. U.S. Code, Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 113, Bees and Brown, Section 2331. The term domestic terrorism means activities that involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state, and B, appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, or to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Well, it's wildfire season here in Oregon. Wildfires are scary things. Whether man-made or nature-made, they blaze out of control, destroying things in their path. But what might be scariest is when the wildfires seem to be contained, yet continue to smolder, spreading among root systems. There are still wildfires from the 2020 season continuing to smolder underground with the possibility of flare-ups maybe at any time. Analogy isn't perfect. It might be a poor when the right-wing terrorist January 6th attack on Washington didn't flare up from nowhere. Trump rode a wave of right-wing populism into the White House, but U.S. right-wing populism existed long before the former president, smoldering, leading to both Trump's election and January 6th. Our guest today is an expert on U.S. right-wing populism, Lawrence Rosenthal, founder and chair of the Center for Right-Wing Studies, University of Berkeley, author of Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. Professor, is it Professor Lawrence? How do you like to be called? Mr. Dr. Rosenthal, what is your preferred moniker? Call me Larry. All right, Larry, let's start with January 6th. What was your response? How did you react? What went through your head that day? A lot. It was, you know, trying to grasp what was happening. And that was hard because there was no precedent that I knew of. The thing perhaps that struck me more than anything else was the sense of impunity that these people were walking through. They were taking photographs of themselves. You know, it was almost as if, wait, 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 try that again. This is my better side. They were so completely without any notion that they were putting themselves in some extraordinary liability but, but by what they were doing. So if there was one thing that struck me as extraordinary on January 6th, watching it all go down, that was it. You've been writing on this stuff, studying on this stuff for a long time. Did that change the level of surprise that you felt relative to your guess of what somebody else might have felt? Or did this feel to you more like a manifestation of stuff you've been warning about and been concerned about for a while? I had actually written before January 6th that the call coming from Trump and his enablers, and as it turns out, there were a lot of people working on this, uh, the call to come to Washington in large numbers yeah. to affect 
who was going to become president, that the real precedent for that is the March on Rome in Italy in 1922, hmm. which placed Mussolini in power. It's not an exact analogy, but it's awfully close. The point was what was going on in Italy. In Italy, it was a parliamentary regime. The king then was going to designate who would become the prime minister. And in order to effect that, Mussolini had thousands of black shirts descend on Rome to essentially intimidate the king and the parliament into giving him Mussolini the mandate. The logic, uh, Trump is, uh, you know, in terms of history and things of that nature, he's ignorant. So he would not have known this, but the logic of it was the same. I am going to bring my masses into Washington. And on the occasion when the president essentially becomes formally um, official, that uh, function of Congress, I am going to bring my people and intimidate Congress out of doing it. The difference between them is Mussolini was successful and Trump was not. My dad, who is is older than you, but shares lived experience that I lack. When he saw Donald Trump running for president, he said, oh, the politician he reminds me most of is Benito Mussolini. Yeah. I go through in the book the ways in which they resemble one another. Um, and there's a lot of them. Um, you know, theatrically, they are very similar. The call and response of the of the uh, the rallies, that kind of thing is very similar. The vulgarity is very similar. And you can go on and on and on like that. Well, let's go on and on a little bit. Some of the similarities I think are interesting. Some I noticed, and again, everything I have is from black and white newsreels and nothing from real-time memory. But something I noticed was Trump rarely smiles. That smiling almost seems like a sign of weakness, right, The uh, to him. And instead, what he wants to do is project power and strength. And I don't know if I've ever seen a picture of Mussolini smiling. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but it is certainly not the dominant image of the man. What other similarities are, should people, might be interesting to people? The way they conducted themselves when speaking has considerable overlap. The striking of poses, they would each strike poses when they spoke. Uh, Mussolini's po attempt to strike poses was more explicitly military, as though he were the top general, that kind of thing. Trump, on the other hand, seemed to me more like, if there is a precedent for what Trump was like on the stump, the precedent I think comes to mind for me is professional wrestling. Hmm. He was like a an announcer on professional wrestling. There is this video online that you can see in which he and Vince McMahon, who ran uh, WWE, the World Wrestling Federation at the time. time. Yeah, and then, then, it, then it went, it was WWF back then, and then WWE later, yep. Right. Where Wrestling Entertainment, um, I think, was the new name. And so they actually fight. Uh, yeah. Mussolini, Trump and, and McMahon actually do yeah. it. 
in the ring. The point being that if there is a model that informed Trump on the stump, I think it's the model of professional wrestling. I want to go back to how... Also... Oh, please, please. The absence of reality that people buy into, that he says things which are plainly ridiculous, but people really like it. That also has a kind of analogy with professional wrestling where people behave as though it is a contest, yet at the same time they know it is scripted. That kind of playing with what's real and not real would become legion under Trump's presidency. And to this day, it's now reached colossal proportions. I hadn't made that connection. I thought of Hannah Arendt, right, who said that they didn't mind the lying of the leader because they saw the lying of the leader as so, so they minded the lying of their enemy. They, they called out the dishonesty of whoever their enemy might be. Uh, but when their own leader lied, even when it was proven, they didn't mind it because, oh, that was them. That was their leader putting one over on the enemy. I had made that connection, but I hadn't thought of it as the professional wrestling example. It's fascinating because, and I was a pro wrestling fan as a kid. And, and part of it is you feel like you're part of it, right? You feel like you're part of the play that's going on when you cheer loudly, when you cheer for the uh, cheer against, you know, yell against the heel and cheer for your hero that that even, and you know that what is going on is a play, but when you cheer for it even louder than you normally, when you would cheer for it as if it were life and death, truly real in every way, then you get to be one of the actors in the play and not just be, uh, and, and, and not just be an observer. Well, as, as it turns out, the, the rally goers um, did indeed by January 6th become part of the action. So when you make the connection to Mussolini, do you see a similarity there? You know, pro wrestling, I don't know if pro, pro wrestling existed in the 1920s, uh, but was there? Mussolini, uh, Mussolini picked it up from a poet called Gabriele D'Annunzio. D'Annunzio was a person who the initial shock troops, if you will, of fascism were the returned veterans of World War I who were unsatisfied with how things turned out for Italy. And D'Annunzio went to, took over a town, took a thousand men or 2000 men and took over a town in what is now, or what was Yugoslavia. It was called in Italian Fiume. And he took it over for a year. And he was the duce of that occupation of Fiume. And he developed all of these routines. He became famous for standing on a balcony and having a back and forth with his followers. And Mussolini backed up his truck and took what he could. He took everything from D'Annunzio. And he was the far better politician. Hmm. Mussolini was educated in politics and was a far better politician, which is a thing to think about with respect to Trump. Trump is ignorant and wasn't a very good politician. The person who can capture his audience next is likely to be a much better politician and therefore perhaps more threatening. So the danger is so much of the dominant conversation has been about the threat that Trump posed. When we talked to in a previous 
interview with Yohai Bankler, who wrote Network Propaganda, his point is, it is the network of propaganda. It is that architectural mass of human interactions, that cult-like machine that is the threat and that the leader who taps into that becomes the manifestation of that threat. What I heard you just say is that the next leader, if they can combine some of the strong traits that Donald Trump offered, if he can tap into it as effectively as he did and offer a higher degree of political and operational competence, then that creates a threat where January 6th is, doesn't only lead to hearings, it leads to, I don't know, hearings of a far different sort. I think it's really important to recognize that what has been stirred up isn't going away. It has precedence. It has reached a kind of tipping point for sure, but it's not going to go away. And that there are politicians, the obvious people are people like Josh Hawley, the mm -hmm. senator from Missouri, or even you know, more so perhaps Tucker Carlson, who are far more, they're far more ideological than mm -hmm. uh, Trump was. They understand that they stand for an emerging ideology that is international in scope. One can call it illiberalism, one can call it illiberal democracy. The person who most embodies that internationally, and there are a lot of them, there's Modi and there's Ergodon and there's you know Boris Johnson to some extent, Netanyahu, it goes on and on and on. But the person who's made himself kind of the most successful and perhaps ideological center of it is Viktor Orban in Hungary. At the moment, Tucker Carlson is broadcasting from Hungary and speaking highly of Viktor Orban. That's something that's beyond the ken, beyond what Trump knows about and cares about. But people like Tucker Carlson or Josh Hawley are far more educated in these matters and understand the moment much better than Trump, who understands it in this kind of instinctive way, but not in a historical or ideological sense. He, he, he can play the tune, but he couldn't, he, he might not be able to write for someone else the, no. uh, the, the script. The tune is generated from within. Yeah. So it and it turns out that it plays very well with this moment. Let's say more about that moment. And yet when we are recording right now, it is Washington Post article right now, U.S. conservatives yearning for Orban's Hungary and in fact talks about Tucker Carlson's visit. And it does this global and I'm going to ask you to name it, Larry, the Somewhat others who I know who are Trump Confederates cite Ron DeSantis as somebody they really like. He would fit into that same category as Holly, same category as Tucker Carlson, arguably, as people who have a political perspective, who read more, say, than the previous president, who understand the moment. Define that moment, if you would. Maybe there's multiple definitions. How do you define that moment? Okay. What happened is that... You know, let's go back to the end of the Cold War and the sense that liberal democracy had won, had wiped out the alternative, which was Soviet-style socialism, 
communism, etc. And it stood, it was a unipolar world. And the formula that that unipolar world used was what in American and, and other social science and political discourse got called neoliberalism, which was very effective for making relatively small numbers of people very rich. It also was a way in which you know, the computer revolution and the internet revolution happened. But at the same time, there was the increasing impoverishment of working class and middle class people, and that was happening all over the world. And the left and left presidents like Clinton and to large extent Obama, Obamacare aside, did not put together a successful alternative to it. And the successful alternative, oddly enough, has come from the right, and it has come in the form of nationalism. So that the unipolar world and the world of neoliberalism came to be understood as the international elite. And it goes by lots of different names. Often in the USA, it's called the hidden state or the, the deep state that kind of thing. But 2008 is the financial crisis of 2008, I think is the beginning of the rise of people like Orban and the development of an alternative to neoliberalism on the right that the left was never able to produce. And, and it has come to be uh, both nationalism and illiberal democracy. I still might want a handy phrase to define the moment. What I heard you say, it is the rise of a white nationalist right-wing response to uh, essentially rising uh, global financial inequities, as well as, and I think I may be putting words, I may be adding words to your description, uh, and a, an apparent, a feeling of reduction of power of uh, white people, particularly white males around the Western world. Uh, that's what I heard you say, maybe add a little bit. Feel free to correct no, I, me. What you're adding is good because even in this country, there's been a debate in this country about who are the Trump followers or better, what is their motivation? Is it economic or is it cultural? Is it about, you know, we've been cast aside by the information economy, or is it that we're being replaced, the great mm -hmm. replacement? And I think it's very clear that here and elsewhere, the motivation is this cultural side. It's this sense of replacement is an excellent word to describe it, which is the sense that we, and this is in America, it's white, largely Protestant, older. It's, it also tends to be more male than female, but this sense that the two evils that they face in their view are multiculturalism and feminism. And their sense that they don't see it as privilege, they see it as what's normal. It's being taken away. Let me give you, let me, it, it's as though if you think about 
identity movements, identity politics on the left, politics of women's movements, of black movements, of minority movements, gays, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The argument is we want a seat at the table where power and social justice is worked out. This identity movement on the right is rather hey, we are losing our seat at the table and we're losing it to essentially feminism and multiculturalism. And that sentiment is felt throughout the world. In fact, the replacement theory comes from France where the right wing has been talking about it since the 1970s, le grand remplacement. And if you think back to Charlottesville, Charlottesville, uh, I think it's August of... 2017 and the march at night with the tiki torches and uh, there were three chants yeah that was one of the chants right there were three chants one was blood and soil the other was jews will not replace us and those were kind of throwbacks to they're almost nazi nostalgia Mm -hmm. the other one was you will not replace us and that is the heart of the sentiment this conviction that white people, and in America, it has, it has increasingly been defined as white people, are being marginalized. In its most combustive statement, uh, people talk about white genocide on the right, as though they are, in fact, being wiped out. So that is the sentiment. If there is a single sentiment at the heart of both what we're seeing among the Trump people here and its similar movement, the zeitgeist across the world, that's what's at the heart of it. Looking back at history, does that continue the thread of Europe in the 19, you know, post-World War One era? Does that analogy or does that historical reference continue to carry? It's not bad, you know, the, the, I assume what you're talking about is essentially what were the conditions that gave rise to fascism? Yeah. And one thing which we do not have, which happened, was precisely the war. There was yeah. a world war. And you had these in Germany, they were the Freikorps. In Italy, they were the uh, squadristi, they were the veterans of the war. And they felt the two things. One, that um, as it, in its most extreme statement in Germany, they lost the war because of the stab in the back, that the new regime, which was the Weimar Republic, which was a, a, a parliamentary democracy, came into power overthrowing the emperor, Uh, or the emperor left, that they were responsible for the loss of the war. In Italy, there was a sense that the people who had stayed neutral, who did not want Italy to go into the war, who were the liberals and the socialists, that they were responsible for that Italy did not get what it wanted, what it felt they were owed in the Treaty of Versailles and so forth. So in both cases, the, the rise of fascism, the rise of Nazism, depended upon this really unhappy warrior class, the, the veterans of World War I. Today, we have a different version of that kind of resentment at the elite 
who have done us wrong. Now it's it's uh, you know replacement. Then it was they made us lose the war, but that's the parallel. The development of a uh, a class of people who viewed either the liberal world or the socialist world or the world of the left and the world of ordinary standard classical conservatism regarded them all as either traitors, the stab in the back, or defeatists, and, and they needed to be replaced. And they, get, they would be replaced by the movement that these people represented. I want to stick with history a little bit, but also to make reference, I think the look at history is useful, lest we repeat it. I also want to avoid being misled by it, lest we be the losing general fighting the last war. I'm reminded when Donald Trump was elected, there was so much Richard Nixon obvious parallel and so much Richard Nixon discussion at the time. So what can we learn from the Nixon era? Almost as if there was a prediction that it would follow the Nixonian arc, but the media has changed so much during the since the Nixon era. The social media and Fox News, this entire communications apparatus, essentially the entire uh, network propaganda apparatus that Professor Bankler talks about didn't exist then. It was very much infancy at that time, and so many of the lessons. You know, you didn't, it wasn't enough for the Washington Post to break open a story that didn't, you know, there's lots of stories. It wasn't, it wasn't enough. And I think it is useful to understand, and this, all of this is prelude to the question I want to ask, but it is useful to understand the history. I think maybe necessary to, I also want to put just a little bit of caveat, lest we think that, well, it's exactly the same now, because of course, not only because there hasn't just been a war, uh, but there's any number of other differences. That said, I still want to ask this. What can we learn from history that gets this sort of moment when you start seeing a multinational movement that is somewhat ironically about nationalism, which then means it has to be something about about something more than just nationalism, which has to be something akin to, let's say, racial identity. Uh, That's the it's not just make America great again. If what you care about is what's happening, what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, that's not about the United States. It's about some common experience that they're trying to advocate for. And it sounds like what you're saying, you will not replace us or blank will not replace us. What can we learn from history about when that crest breaks or when that wave crests, when the fever breaks? Well, first of all, let me throw in one more thing, which is that Trump had this direct, unmediated relationship to his potential followers and his followers, and that was Twitter. And he used that to go around any media filtration or anything Mm -hmm. of that nature. Mussolini edited a newspaper. He spoke directly to his followers. They were both media figures in this sense and had unmediated link to followers. And I think that's very significant uh, for each of them to go back in the sense to uh, parallels between them. So the question that you ask about what have we learned about what can make that diverge is it's not easy. What its most general form, this 
body on the right, be it in, in, in 1919 Italy or 1933 Germany or 2021 USA. It is the right wing, especially its most militant and militia-like elements, but also throughout the rally goers and to some extent, the people who have, the populists who have been voting uh, Republican for 40 years, they believe they're the tough people. They believe that liberals and uh, the likes of Democrats and Hollywood people and university professors and all of that are flabby, lazy, weak, and that they're the tough guys. And that when the liberal world comes down hard against them, they scatter. And for that reason, I think that, for example, Biden's Justice Department, who have arrested over 500 people from January 6th, are doing what's necessary with respect to that movement. We have to see what will happen by way of the disposition of all of those cases. But learning that the liberal world is going to take so much and not much more is really significant. You know, in its, in its global sense, the Nazis and the fascists believed that the Western world, the Americans and, you know, the British and the French and so forth, they were the equivalent of the weak liberals and they got beat. So there is a history. One hopes <laughs> that nothing of that nature has to occur. But the liberal world, the blue America standing up and saying so far and no farther is really significant. This is very interesting to me. So what first came to mind was imagining basic bully politics. If you stand up to the bully, the bully might not stay the bully. And how much of that in your mind, it sounded to me like what you were saying is some of that is psychological. That if, and, and I think to some of my friends who, who are Trump, uh, supporters, and it is connected to their sense of masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. And if you, and there's been insightful stuff written about the rhetoric of the right wing over the last few decades that really is low key calling Democrats the homophobic F word has basically been even the the sort of flip-flopper thing. I went back and when John Kerry was being called a flip-flopper and Bill Clinton was being called a flip-flopper, and I went back and I watched a debate between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, and Gerald Ford was calling uh, Jimmy Carter a flip-flopper. I was like, oh, they've basically been making an argument now for decades that the left is weak, the left is sissies, and I could use other monikers that would be much meaner and less appropriate. And I can tell you one tale. I went to a, uh, a, a kind of convention of Republicans once, you know, several years ago in Texas, long before Trump, and asked in one particular case, uh, asked the question, under what circumstances would you vote for a Democrat? And, and nobody would. And I would, and if I asked why, the answer that went to the heart of it is they're all a bunch of pussies. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is when there's evidence to the contrary of that, you think that shakes the understanding, the collective understanding of the nationalist thing. It, well, I think it, it, it disrupts them. 
I think if you look at some of the uh, coverage of the people who have been arrested, um, they say things like, you know, I was just doing what Trump said to do. I didn't realize it was what you're calling it. You know, there's this response of loss of all that bravado, loss of all what I talked about at the beginning, this sense of impunity, like we're doing something we're never going to be punished for, discovering they're going to be punished for it has been extremely deflating. There's a difference between that happening at the individual level of those guys who have been arrested and the movement, but to whatever extent the movement can be uh, defanged. It requires Blue America, in effect, en masse to have um, that kind of we will not stand for this attitude. How is that strength shown? Well, prosecution is one. You know, then there's the question of how do you show it on the political level? And that's really being fought over. So, for example, get rid of the filibuster or not. You get rid of the filibuster and you can enact a democratic agenda, a progressive agenda, if you will, that the likes of which we haven't seen, in fact, since the New Deal. There are elements of it that have snuck through. There was the, you know, the first thing that went through on, on just purely democratic vote. And now there's sense that the uh, infrastructure thing might happen. But the Democrats run the risk of promising and not delivering, which is, is creates a vacuum into which these people fill that vacuum. So for example, again, if you, this is all in the book, but if, if you go back to the Italy example, this post-World War One. 1919, 1920 were called the Biennio Rosso in Italy, the red two years. There was the certain conviction that socialism was coming to power in Italy. Things like the fiat was taken over, workers took over the factories and things of that nature. The general expectation was this is what was going to happen. And it didn't. And the fascists rose as the force that once that bubble burst, beat them both literally and politically in numerous ways. But the point being, and the, the Italians at the time used the phrase um, revoluzione mancata, which would be, would be revolution. The socialists said, we're going to bring something and they didn't do it. To some extent, there's a parallel between that and the Obama years. If you think back to 2008, 2009, there's a, a cover, I think, of Time or Newsweek with Obama done with FDR's cigarette in a cigarette holder, a cartoon, this was their cover, of Obama as the new FDR. The phrase that was being used in 2008, 2009 was, the Obama presidency was going to be transformative. Yeah. That word was all over the place. It didn't happen. The Tea Party arose in 
that vacuum. That's the theory that many people used back in 1922 to explain the rise of fascism, the Revolutione Mancata, the would-be revolution that didn't happen and created a vacuum. The Biden administration runs the risk of doing that again if they don't make good on the program they are suggesting. This, of course, is an ongoing argument, and most of the progressive commentators share your view, and the narrative essentially being, you set expectations during election. If you don't fulfill those expectations, you leave the vacuum, and white nationalism can step into the vacuum, and it reinforces this notion that the left is a bunch of sissies, ineffectual people who can't uh, get things done, and then tie into the deep misogynist strain within our, or strains within our culture. And I get that. I want to keep on this idea of showing strength or see if there's other examples, because these, of course, come, okay, prosecute, uh, get rid of the filibuster, enact some things. Any other examples that you've seen out there, either from history or real time, or things that even in just methods of communication, in what podcasters should be doing and what authors should be doing and what politicians should be doing when they campaign, uh, anything that shows the kind of strength you think that, uh, that, that leads also to fulfilled promises, any other notes? The only thing at this point, I think, at this level of argumentation, uh, there's no silver bullet yeah. here. There's no action or rhetoric or ideological turn of phrase that's going to do it. What could happen over time is weaning people away by virtue of things like putting money in their pockets, you know, making their lives less onerous, less, you know, a sense of being kicked to the side. This goes back to the economic argument that, um, you know, it, it is the left behind former middle class and working class. Um, but to the extent to which they have embraced Trump, it is through this sense of replacement and, and what I've called the cultural side. But that can be diminished. Um, the attraction of that can be diminished if actual lives get better. I want to talk some more about the book and some about the book before we before we wrap. I do just want to put a quick thought out there that one of the moves that happened in the wake of World War II was essentially the creation of not transcendent heroes, but transcendent villains, uh, that the ultimate manifestation of, of white fascist nationalism was, in fact, another war. That war is lost by the fascists. And there, and, and through media communication, tribunals, uh, trials, collective understanding, there is no baby can any longer be named Adolf, and nobody can wear a skinny little mustache like Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler did. Uh, and all you have to do is then cite to that authority, and you have to avoid some of that. And and of course, the, the fight over what merits a Hitler reference and what doesn't is its own debate. But the creating of transcendent villains, I suppose that's another 
I, I, that's another thing at issue and one of the reasons probably why, well, certainly why Republicans have resisted so hard a real participation in January 6 hearings and accountability there because they don't want anything adjacent to them being tarnished in that way and in, in exceeding to and creating consensus that that kind of conduct is, is as evil as it is, lest it too closely adjacent to Tucker Carlson and other things that they want to be able to cleave to. Well, okay. The the thing that's different hmm. that's left out of that um, post World War II is communism. Post World War II, the, immediately there was a new villain. You know, they had been on oh, fair the point. side during the war, Uncle Joe and uh, Joe Stalin. But immediately after the war, that totalitarianism of the Nazis and the fascists was replaced, as it were, by the new totalitarian enemy. And it was an old enemy, but refreshed and ready to go, that the communist international. So that was uh, the context for what constituted enemies during the Cold War. There was a transcendent enemy. Post-Cold War, that changed. And as I suggested earlier, the neoliberal face of liberal democracy took it for granted that it was a unipolar world. The, you know, the, the most famous version of that was Francis Fukuyama in the 90s, sure. who wrote a book called The End of History. There's no longer an enemy liberal democracy has triumphed and the world is inevitably moving in that direction. And what he didn't see was the potential rise of a new nationalism. And that's what happened. And neoliberalism conspired in it in, in terms of the creation of, of an international elite. And then came 2008, which gave the lie to the neoliberal world that they could actually, well, they were in charge. They were running things okay. They knew what they were doing. And it turned out that they didn't. Um, and this gave an amazing boost to the rise of an alternative point of view on the right, which was nationalism. Fukuyama explicitly rejected the rise of a new form of nationalism, that it would not have the weight to face liberal democracy, but it turned out it did. I want to talk about words. You, you've used the word neoliberal. I avoid that word because it gets people of goodwill whacking the word liberal to anybody who isn't yeah. you know, reading a bunch of stuff. I, I, I long for, I advocate for different verbiage than that. I want to talk about another word. I want to talk about populism. The narrative that I embrace as distinct, not just embrace, maybe the narrative I'm trying to pull together is that the big thing is democracy. The reason this court sits is for democracy. And what I now am starting to stitch together is what are the greatest threats and the biggest villains, the greatest enemies to the best parts, the best elements of American democracy. And for me, that is the Confederacy, that is the Nazis, and that has been Russia. And I know that in many liberal circles, the posing of enemies is itself. So it can, because of how it's been used in the past, it can be so dangerous. Uh, but 
that comes to mind. And so I say it out loud, feel free to push back on that or add to that. I do. And if you don't take, if there's nothing there that's worth talking about, I do want to talk about this word populism, seeding the word populism. I cringe every single time I see Trump described as a populist. And for a few reasons, one, the dude never got more than 50% of the vote on anything. He basically never got over 50% approval rating on himself or anything he was trying to do. His stuff wasn't all that popular. A lot of it appealed to our, I hesitate to even say our, but I'll say our baser instincts. A lot of it was non-intellectual. A lot of it was not coherently ideological. A lot of it was not policy driven. I understand that it's not a lot and therefore oh, what is left, well, what is there? Well, it's, it's populist. I worry about, I've cringed every time I hear that. You, you people, go ahead. People on the left, you know, hate it. <laughs> I edited a book in about the Tea Party called Steep, The Precipitous Rise of the Tea Party, which, which had two chapters which argued uh, Tea Party was or was not populist. And the argument that said it wasn't insisted that populism was this thing that arose on the left and was about empowering on an economic level ordinary people. Starts with farmers, but it goes on. Uh, and what Trump or what the Tea Party stood for was its exact opposite. And you can't use the word populist. I dissent from that. I distinguish between left populism and right populism, and that the essence of populism is resentment, is the emotion of resentment, and it is a resentment of an elite. Resentment is anger directed at someone you perceive above you, as distinct from contempt, which is anger uh, uh, directed at someone you see below you. Mm. I believe there is a populism of the left and a populism of the right. Populism of the left is such that the perceived elite is a financial. On the right, the perceived elite is a cultural elite. And Donald Trump spoke to that in a way that came naturally to him. He has this funny version of, <laughs> he grows up in Queens and has this sense of Manhattan people looking down on him. The larger sense of that kind of sense of resentment in America is, is often called the point of view of flyover America, that's sure. the, the coast. What Trump comes from was flyover New York. I, I, somewhere in the book, I have a, a quote from Ralph Reed who points out that coming from Queens, coming from where Trump comes from, and coming from the rural South, have this in common. And Trump spoke that language. And that's the basis of his connection to his, and I, I use the word advisedly after you, to his populist base. And I don't quibble definitionally. I quibble strategically. Huh? That the that if I look it up, populism up, political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. And you said, yeah, they're that under your definition, uh, right elitism, or excuse me, right populism is 
is resistance to an elitism they view as cultural and therefore it fits the definition. And that I don't, I don't have any strong disagreement with it, nor do I have a strong disagreement definitionally with the use of the word neoliberal. I just don't feel either of them are very strategic. I don't, in terms of capturing, of building a supermajority, a, a growing consensus, how the world ought to be, how we're going to get there, how we're going to build or rebuild a pro-democracy consensus. It, it is the cringe is in fact, my own populist instinct that, it, that it, uh, that it ruffles rather than my, uh, rather than my frontal lobe or educated portion. Uh, I but I appreciate your explanation. You. I actually agree with you about the relative as a strategic element of, of political element. I agree with you about the relative uselessness or even negative consequences of the use of the word neoliberalism. It's confusing. It attempts to give a single answer to everything. And so I think it is in fact limited. I use it as I have here as a shorthand sure. for the word which has emerged to describe that transformation of capitalism, which occurred starting in the 1970s and took off and galloped with Ronald Reagan and became more and more severe and which the left under Clinton and the third way and so forth ultimately collaborated in, or you could even say capitulated to. So it's a shorthand for that, yep. for the transformation of the American, you know, the, the deal, the post-World War II deal or the deal coming out of the New Deal, where if you had a job and you worked and so forth, you could have a good life. You could have a house and you could have the American dream. Um, and that got eroded starting in the 70s. And by the time, you know, it got worse and worse and worse, the things like the disparity in wealth became extraordinary over this period. Um, and the last bit of it, the its last hurrah from the point of view of, of the working and middle class was the housing burst in 2008, that people, okay, if I buy this house, I can refinance it and I can refinance it, I refinance it. And that was kind of the last hurrah of holding on to the American dream. And then that collapsed and people were, to use the phrase, uh, popular in 2008, 2009, were underwater. They possessed houses that uh, they owed more on than, than they were worth any longer on a market. So that was kind of a, a final straw where neoliberalism had a collapse. And the response to it was the rise of nationalism. And people like Orban in uh, Hungary are absolutely explicit about that. They regard 2008 as a world historical event, as they call yep. it, like the end of a war. 2008 yeah. was like that and explains their rise. No, in, in my alternative history as a, as a Portland Trailblazer fan, uh, I have to root for hope and imagine alternative universes 
as distinct from merely celebrating the championships that we don't win. And it, it has helped engender a habit or strengthen a habit that imagines alternative universes maybe too readily. One of the alternative universes I imagine is one where Barack Obama with a, a transcendent skill set does not run for president in 2008. That in fact, John McCain wins the presidency in that year. The entirety of that, of that crisis is then more obviously by the world uh, seem to be borne by the right wing rather than the the rhetorical pivot they try to do to sort of blame it on Obama. And then Obama runs four years later, wins handily and brings a dawn of an era that responds to that in more than around the edges and the dream of hope, but in fact is able to implement a program with enough media support, with enough human support, with enough electoral support, enough congressional support to in fact provide, you know, a new New Deal, you know, a, a, another era. This is my different alternative history that is useful to no one, maybe not even to me, but I think about it. The problem, as it were, with that, you know, and maybe I speak from the point of view of someone who, you know, got to watch Stephen Curry over five great years, <laughs> um, that there wasn't, the left had not created the alternative yeah. in 2008. Okay, you know, the alternative, the viable alternative to, let me say, use the word again, neoliberalism, mm -hmm. finally came from the right. It did not come from the left. And it, Obama in 2008, it wasn't there. He didn't have it. It begins to emerge in, well, the obvious avatar of it is Bernie Sanders. So let me ask in our, in our remaining minutes, you do talk about I find the ideological migration of 2016, including the story of how Donald Trump prepared to be president by catering to right-wing radio personalities, by following right-wing news sites, uh, by learning the music, you know, by learning the script, and, and Trump finding this, and I'll use your word, populist revolt. You describe that as an ideological migration. Explain migration from where to where. If you think back to the Tea Party, the Tea Party was the populist response almost immediately. The next month after, after Obama's inauguration, you get the rise, you get the, in the beginning of the Tea Party, February 2009. And it, it is the dominant story, political story of the Trump years, Trump years, excuse me, the Obama years. And what do they come to stand for sort of nationally? You know, there's a lot of local issues, but what do they stand for on a national basis? The first thing was the fierce, fierce opposition to Obamacare, to a social welfare program. Then nationally, the next one was the debt crisis. This is the ideology of the Koch brothers, here was a populist rising whose ideology was free market fundamentalism. Yeah. Okay. Trump comes along and the ideological migration is to Trump America first nationalism. That's all left behind. All the populist embrace of Koch brothers-like ideology, that's all left behind. They move to this other one. In general, as I argue in the book, ideological commitment 
on the populist right tends to be skin deep. And so, and what you say about Trump's preparation to run for president was an immersion in right-wing media. Everything that he, all the themes and the memes of his campaign were all things that right-wing talk shows were, were had been talking about. And the, the site that uh, Steve Bannon ran, Breitbart, you know, all of these sites they they were and he he perceived all that and he was facile in talking uh, about it. Just the other day, in the reporting on Trump having had these calls with the Justice Department, with Je- uh, with the, the the acting Attorney General Rosen after Bill Barr trying to say, um, well, listen, just find some flaw and I'll take care of the rest. And he was told in response there, that, you know, we have found no element of corruption or fraud in the election. And he responds something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, of you plainly don't watch or don't pay attention to the internet as much as I do. So even through his presidency, he is taking his themes from the extreme right media bubble. And by then, it's a kind of back and forth between him and then, them. But he is still immersed in that world, which is how he prepared himself to run in the first place. You go back and talk even go far as back as the Scopes monkey trial and the repeal of prohibition to explain how uh, right-wing sort of resentment-based politics were embarrassed. Tell that story or connect those dots. Well, the point being that this has been a standard element in, in American politics, that there is an extreme populist right, which in the case of evolution, perceived it as contradicting religion. The teetotaling movement, which won the arrival of prohibition in, uh, by way of a, of, a, of a constitutional amendment, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. Three quarters of state legislatures have to pass it. And then there was the Volstead Act, which overcame a veto. Uh, but anyhow, the, there was this great triumph. And it was it, to put it in kind of large, perhaps over large terms, the town drunk in in small town America in the 19th century was, you know, you could explain his, and I emphasize his uh, limitations based on alcohol. There was some validity to that, a lot of validity to it. And so you get the beginning of the 20th century and massive immigration from essentially from Europe, including Southern Europe and, and Eastern Europe. And the rise of not only big cities in, at, at a level that you hadn't have them be, had them before, but the rise of delinquency in those towns and, and, and that sort of thing. This right wing having understood that you know these problems arise from drink in small town america came to believe that the solution was to ban alcohol 
then they would not have succeeded in doing so had they not won the backing of, of at that time, some very important captains of industry who believed that the new working class had to be more reliably show up at eight in the morning than they were showing up. So it passed and then it was a disaster and there was a sense of humiliation. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, um, God, what's it called? Uh, with Spencer Tracy and Frederick March um, about the Scopes trial, it was broadcast on TV, it was on TV, on radio. Um, you, you know, uh, one of the first things ever covered directly on radio. Inherit the, the wind. Inherit the wind. Thank you. And, and was, you know, looked at internationally. And they recognized that the world was looking at them as ignorant, backward people. And then when prohibition collapsed, basically the right populist politics stayed functional in certain regions of the USA, but no longer had a kind of national footprint. And that changes in the 1960s. The reaction to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, to the counterculture, to the rise of a gay movement, of women's movement, basically shook the ground under the feet of what would become a newly resurgent right-wing populist populism, which um, the Republican Party self-consciously cultivated. What do you mean by grayed out illiberalism? Um, I was using the analogy of, of a computer uh, that if you're on a site and you want to have to click on an option, you have to answer a whole bunch of questions because before that button pops up in full color, before it pops up in full color, it's grayed out. And under Trump, illiberalism in America, this is before January 6th, the book comes out in September 2020, that he has created the ground for illiberalism, a la uh, one finds it in places like Poland and, and Hungary, but they haven't come to fruition yet. In other words, the illiberal button was still grayed out, that which was necessary for it to illuminate and be clickable had not yet happened. And that's owing to a lot of things. And it's, you know, above all to what turned out to be the strength of American institutions. What gets the button to illuminate so it is clickable? Storming the Capitol ain't bad. Um, you know, that, 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 does, that does a mighty fine job of it. Um, what does it? I think the thing that is most in play to do it right now is voting rights. The uh, attempt to game the electoral system, illiberal democracy, the, the liberal democratic societies still have elections, but the ruling party can essentially never lose or yeah. 
it, it's a trick and for them to lose. And, and that comes from a whole range of ways in which um, uh, the political game is, well, to use Trump's word, rigged, um, so that they can't lose. That's what is going on in, in 30 state legislatures at the moment. Um, it's different, you know, that the capacity, there's two things. One is to make it very difficult for people who you don't like to vote. That's one thing. And to some extent that can be overcome by getting people registered and out to the, to the polls. But what's novel uh, in, in the wake of 2020 in the 2020 election and quote unquote, say, you know, stop the steal is empowering state legislatures to replace or not only voting officials, but actual electors for the presidency that state legislatures can overrule the results of votes. That's the real, to my mind, um, beyond things like, okay, you can't drink water online and you, know, you can stand in line for six hours. That's pretty bad. But empowering the Republican legislature of, of um, Pennsylvania to say, oh, Look at what they did. Look at what they did in Philadelphia. Those votes um, uh, are not uh, valid and uh, we can name electors who will be, we have the power to nominate electors in the place of corrupted voting. That's the, the novelty of the moment in, in uh, uh, the fight over uh, voting rights. And this is the direction, and this is becoming more and more to be the focus of our conversations here. And even when I was listening to an interview with George Will, when he lionized the Lochner era, and I could see it became more and more clear to me that the move is to quote the title of Nancy McLean's book, the, the strategy is to put democracy in chains. It is not only, I, I am becoming, I'm finding the words liberal and even progressive less useful at this point in the movie. Uh, democracy still feels like a useful word. The old line is, you know, all theories are false, but some are useful. I still find democracy deeply useful and trying to foment a pro-democracy movement in this country is becoming more and more what seems so obviously necessary. And it seems now so obvious that what is happening is in fact, not only illiberal, not only populist, not only resentment-based, but in fact, anti-democracy in the yeah. ways that are maybe the most important. I was gonna ask a question that was unrelated to that, but I should probably pause in case you wanna to respond to what I just said. No, no, um, I'm fine. Uh, before we wrap, let's circle back. Yeah quickly to January 6th. Insurrection isn't successful, at least if the definition of success is toppling the government. Uh, FBI has arrested 300 people, over 300 people involved with that attack. But despite its failure, it, it does not seem that the far-right uh, resentment-based movement 
has been particularly tamped down or driven away. Uh, using the analogy we used before, it continues to uh, smolder, waiting for the next flare-up. Do you have any expected outcomes of the House Select Committee? Do you have any concerns or insights about the current uh, right-wing resentment-based movement that you want to make sure that are in our minds? This is kind of where we began. Yeah. I think that serious enforcement and uh, you know taking very seriously January 6th and the perpetrators of January 6th is the most important thing that um, you know the liberal world that blue America needs to do teach the lesson, as it were, that um, blue America is not going to roll over. We've been talking with Dr. Lawrence Rosenthal, founder and chair of the Center for Right-Wing Studies at University of California, Berkeley, author of the book, Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rosenthal, or Larry, and thanks for being a democracy nerd. Thank you. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy. 